wide-scale adoption of cloud applications, an increase in remote workers, and expansion of branch offices has rendered the centralized, on-premises security model impractical. Enter Cisco Umbrella. Umbrella now includes secure web gateway, firewall, and cloud access security broker functionality, plus integration with Cisco SD-WAN, all delivered from a single cloud security service. It helps businesses of all sizes secure their network and extend protection to roaming users and branch offices. Security doesn't have to be complicated. Get simple, smart, and powerful security with Cisco Umbrella. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Cisco Umbrella to learn more. Today's connected world leaves no room for errors. Newstar reliably secures those connections. Newstar's cloud solutions, which include web application security, DDoS protection, DNS services, IP geolocation, and threat intelligence, ensure network availability across the globe. With over 20 years of award-winning security experience, Newstar proudly enables and protects digital assets of some of the world's largest enterprises. Find out how your company can benefit from the power of Newstar's trusted connection by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Newstar. Secure your world with Newstar. Always on, ultra secure. Do you worry about ransomware, data breaches, reputation damage, especially from phishing attacks, on employees working from home? The facts are, top cloud security tools have a 15% failure rate. 51% of phishing is social media based. Pixum knows because Pixum detects and stops breaches at point of click. Pixum's AI real-time solution detects actual fraud happening in a browser and stops it. Know your real security gaps. Get a phishing actualization test free at securityweekly.com forward slash Pixum. That's P-I-X-M. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Adrian Sanabria and Jeff Mann. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review them monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. This segment is sponsored by ExtraHop. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop dash R-S-A-C. Mark Bowling is Vice President of Security Response Services at ExtraHop. He advises global customers on risk management and mitigation strategy and helps them respond to complex cybersecurity incidents quickly, thoroughly, and in compliance with regulatory frameworks, including GDPR, CCPA, NERC, PCI DSS, just for Jeff. What? Did you ISO, say PCI? I did. <laughs> ISO, SEC, and HIPAA. Prior to Extra Hot, Mark spent more than two decades investigating and combating cyber attacks in leadership roles with the FBI and the Department of Education. Mark, welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly. Thank you very much, Matt. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're going to talk about building a response strategy to advance threats. And and obviously, we know the last five months has all been about solar winds, right? Um, RSA conference this week, a lot of uh, discussions around SolarWinds. SolarWinds CEO did the keynote. You have a lot of discussions about supply chain risk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to kick us off, let, let's think about response for a second, right? And when I think about response, the first thing you have to do is detect. And I think the challenge with SolarWinds is not a lot of people detected this attack. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. I think when you when you look at uh, the kind of challenges that companies like uh, Colonial Pipeline face, uh, we had a huge ransomware attack out in San Diego, Scripps Hospital. Um, they have problems uh, uh, frequently across the board. I'm not going to prejudge them. Uh, I'm glad I'm not there having to face uh, what they're facing. I wish I could help them out. I'd love to, to pitch in. But what 
what you're addressing is a failure to either identify and understand the entire scope of your network, or you may have a failure to detect what's going on in your network. And that comes back to what I call an, an issue with visibility. Do you have visibility? Are you able to watch everything that you need to protect? And, and that includes supply chain, and that includes endpoints, and that includes the entirety of your network. But what they're facing is, did we, did they, Colonial, have visibility into their entire network? Yeah, I mean, visibility has been a challenge, I think, for organizations for 20, 30. We might even go back a little longer. I mean, it was was a little easier in the old days, but I mean, think about the landscape we have now. We have people working from home. We have services in the cloud. We have data centers that are moving stuff to the cloud. I mean, it was hard enough to get visibility in my corporate data centers, right? It, it, now we have all these other challenges. I mean, how do, you, how do you even start to address the visibility problem in a very decentralized, um, open world? Because that's, that's, that's what all of our, our customers are facing today. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So let, let's talk about, let's call, let's call it deperimeterization. I know that Alan Powler and, and Eric Cole have used that term. But deperimeterization means that you no longer have the perimeter that is protecting your entire network. We used to have firewalls. If people were dialing in, they would dial in through a radius server. That's gone. And deperimeterization has been largely driven by, by three elements. The first element has been the move to cloud. So we're moving out of data centers and into cloud assets. The second has been the rise of mobility and we're, when we talk about mobility, we're talking about cell phones, and we're also talking about laptops and pads that have business uses. They're part of your business environment. They provide business functions, but now they are outside of your uh, your the perimeter of your network. And the third one that we have seen since March 19th of last year has been the the explosion in what we call remote work or teleworking, and that's where you have people and they're using their home. Uh, firewall if they have one they have a home router they have a business internet i've i've been literally working remotely for my clients for over four years so i understand that but a year ago people necessarily didn't understand that it organizations it operations and particularly it infrastructure was not prepared for people to move wholesale out of the workplace where there was at least a corporate perimeter and into an entirely remote environment. So we have what I call ubiquitous deperimeterization. Yeah. One of the solutions, go ahead. No, 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 keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll come in later. <laughs> yeah, one of the solutions to that is to increase your visibility across your entire networking environment. And that's what I love about a very, very powerful network detection and response tool. And I'm, I'm gonna, mention extra hop and that's the last time i'm going to mention them i'll just say ndr from now on but you can use ndr and if your ndr is cloud native i'm not going to pitch them again but i know of a really good uh ndr tool that is cloud native if you are in a hybrid environment this tool can view all of your uh, network transmissions in your cloud environment across your multi-cloud environment if you have multiple cloud presences and many people are in both Azure and in Amazon, and they may be in Amazon as well as Google Cloud Platform. 
So if you have visibility into the hybrid cloud environment, you have visibility across your entire hybrid or your multi-cloud environment, you have visibility across your hybrid and your data center environment, or your, I'm gonna call it your corporate or your enterprise or your premise network, then you have comprehensive visibility. And so pervasive, effective NDR is one of the solutions to this deperimeterized environment that people are working in now. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, you talk about a couple of the areas. There's a third one to me, which is the home worker, the teleworker. And this is where I think EDR has some limitations in that if it's a corporate device, I, I, I can put EDR on it. Exactly. But some of these people didn't have corporate devices at home. They're they're working off their home machine. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what the adoption rate of having EDR solutions put on personal machines has been. Right. It'd be interesting to understand. But that's another potential lack of visibility point. If, if I've got a user working at home on a personal machine, logging into systems, and I don't have EDR on it, I, I have no visibility into what's going right. on in those transactions. Yeah, and, and let me throw another curveball at you. Let's say they do have a home computer that they're using, but the protective uh, compensating control, okay, the mitigation tool that they're using is let's use VDI, let's use Citrix. Well, there are a lot of, quote, NDR solutions that don't necessarily have the ability to observe both the Citrix virtual machine as well as the home user using a, a non-EDR protected solution. So if you're going to implement an NDR solution, you need to have one that can both track the home user at home as well that's logging in from their home IP address, probably unprotected. That endpoint is unprotected, but they're also using a Citrix solution. So if you're going to choose an NDR solution that's going to overcome that natural, um, uh, not impediment, but that natural blind spot that EDR can't look into, then you wanna make sure that you have an NDR solution that captures both those virtual you know, VDI environments. Yeah, and you, you even mentioned the firewalls. If you have a firewall at home, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't put a, a, a lot of faith into some of the Soho <laughs> router firewall <laughs> technologies to be that protection barrier for those home networks either. <laughs> Absolutely, and 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 what you have to understand is if you're working from the remote telework environment and it is not through a company issued device that is protected, you have to be concerned about all of the. Um, nodes, all of the endpoints on that home environment. Maybe my machine is secure, but maybe my son's laptop isn't secure. Maybe he's, you know, going places he shouldn't. And maybe his laptop has malware on it or spyware or some type of uh, snort type tool, some sniffing tool that can capture the communication on your environment. So, there there needs to be some real concern about how these home environments can introduce um, both uh, unauthorized monitoring of your communications as well as the potential to compromise an endpoint that can be then used as a uh, avenue or uh, an exploitable mechanism to get into your network. Yeah, I mean, you guys see a lot of lateral movement in a corporate network. The same thing can happen at a home network. So 
I, I'm fully with you there. Um, so if if I can interject real quick, um, I, I'm I'm sort of bubbling over with angst here. Angst is probably not the right word. Uh, just a general statement. We're we're the conversation to up to this point is predicated on what I'm hearing as an assumption is that in the good old days, uh, when when there was a perimeter, that things were secure. Uh, no, and I no. and I think that's a no. no that's that's, <laughs> that's a negative Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. Yep. yep. Um, but uh, th- that's just more more of a comment. I, I want to ask you uh, because Extra Hop, uh, at least on their About Us page, sort of right front and center, talks about how you provide protection, a point of sale system. I've worked with within the world of PCI for you know since before PCI was a thing, so seventeen, eighteen years, and and whenever we have a discussion about endpoints. Uh, for many years, I've, I, I've, I've brought up the fact that in, in the PCI world, in, in the retail world, the endpoints in question are not desktops on a desk within a corporate environment. The endpoints are customer-facing, exposed to people walking into retail locations throughout the land, you know, uh, you know what we used to call cash registers. Um, so, in one sense... Uh, the idea of endpoints now being sort of personal devices and out there in the open shouldn't be a new concept if you've properly addressed over the years the fact that within the PCI world you've got the catch registers, the point-of-sale systems that are technically endpoints, but they're certainly not internal within the network. Um, um, If you've done that, uh, and maybe you can expound on that, great, but, you know... I've talked to many vendors that talk about endpoint, you know, protection and whatever the the, the buzzword is for what we're calling that this week, uh, and they have no clue uh, how to address something like a point of sale system. And yet, you guys have it on your page. So please pontificate. <laughs> so, what we're capturing are the transmissions between the endpoints that are observable on any segment of the network. So let's let's talk about the PCI use case right now. If you've done PCI and I've done more than my fair share of SAQDs, what you have is you have a series of questions that talk about, in many cases, the topology. No, what we have is failure to communicate, but proceed. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a segmented network that contains all of your PCI data, and that would start from your point of sale device, and that network should be segmented logically perhaps not physically, but logically, so that you have the segmented data, the the segmented data from your PCI device device is going to what's called a payment gateway, and then processed through whoever's managing your transactions for your enterprise. That is segmented, and that's uh, in in, in the the, uh, requirements of the PCI DSS, PCI Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, there is it is implied and in some place explicitly stated that it needs to be segmented so if you don't have visibility there and your desktops probably don't have a lot of visibility there then you have no endpoint detection so let's talk about what the scope of endpoints mean outside of the pci inside pci endpoints mean cash registers and those little terminals that you plug your card into with your chip so that's 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 an endpoint. 
they may or may not be able to have an endpoint detection or uh, we call it EDR in the good old days. It was antivirus software. They cannot deploy those. There are other endpoints that cannot deploy EDR software. Industrial control systems such as SCADAs cannot deploy EDR software. If you know what a PID, a proportional integral derivative uh, controller, those are uh, a type of industrial control. Most of those can't deploy EDR software on them. I, I can't think of any that can, in fact. You have what are called programmable logic controllers. Uh, Alan Bradley used to make them. Now, um, I think they're part of Lockheed. Uh, programmable logic controllers, they're microprocessors, but you cannot put EDR software on them. All of those exist in an industrial environment. I'm going to call it a process control or a process-driven critical infrastructure. Guess what? Colonial? was a process-driven critical infrastructure. And I guarantee they have a lot of programmable logic controllers and a lot of SCADA devices. None of those devices could be protected by EDR. So when we talk about endpoints across the scope of the entire network, in some of these business environments, these operating environments, only a very small segment of those devices, the laptops, the desktops, some of the servers can be protected by what we consider to be traditional EDR software. Now, here's where NDR provides value. NDR still sees all the communications from your data center, from your cloud, into your enterprise network that then communicates to what I'm gonna call the supervisory layer or the command layer that manages those processes. So yes, you cannot look using EDR, at those endpoints, but you can still observe all of the communications, all of the transmissions that are sent over internet protocol, over ethernet, you know, 802.3, I believe. And, and then that, you capture those transmissions using an effective NDR tool that then allows you to analyze those for potential threats. That answer your question, Matt? Well, it was Jeff, but yes, yeah, um, I'm sorry. I get that one because I've been, I've been somewhat. There. I, I mean, I, I think the you know to, to try to um, uh, paraphrase, um, I, I think the problem that we're talking about is the presumption that endpoints in the old days in the classical network are. Uh, within the perimeter they're somewhere buried inside the network and they're the, therefore they afford they are afforded all these great perimeter protections that we all know were there and robust and and prevented all sorts of attacks and and the 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 challenge that we're now facing more publicly and, and, and more across the board different companies different organizations different verticals is the fact that the endpoints which we presume to be protected by perimeter protections and therefore we didn't have to put protections on the devices themselves are now out in the open and and you know more more recently it's been they're, they're they're exposed in home networks and who knows what's going on there but you know a year and a half ago we would we would have been having the discussion about people you know logging in at the Starbucks or you know the local watering hole or the local internet hotspot where they're they're going to get their free access uh, to the internet um, so in some ways it's not new 
but in many ways it's it's proliferated because of circumstances over the last year and a half where it's not just some small percentage of people that are doing this and somehow we can we can wrap that up and 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 have a have a, a an argument for it it's pretty much everybody that's now doing it this way yeah um yeah so so there's this i feel like there's this elephant in the room that we should discuss um you know just talking about the actual detection piece about this i feel like there's two components to visibility you know and after solar winds i saw a bunch of vendors say you know we we detected that or we could have detected that and they're not wrong but i feel like there's two pieces to that and the first piece is that there's an event somewhere that tells you that you know, that, that there's something nasty going on, there's something bad going on. Uh, but the other critical piece of that is some automated process, or more often than not, it's a human seeing that event, recognizing it for what it is, and invoking that incident response process, you know, and doing something about it. And we've seen a lot of cases, Equifax is a great example, um, Target is a great example, where they had they owned all the products they needed um but either you know people didn't put eyeballs on the particular alert that they needed to at the time they needed to and didn't recognize it uh for what it is you know or you know like in the target place you know FireEye called them up and said hey you got problems and they still didn't do the right thing so i i i think um my question here is how can we make it more likely that that second piece, you know, that uh, like, let's assume that we've got all the visibility we need, you know, that the bad stuff going on um, exists there in the product. You know, how do we increase the chances that somebody actually sees it and acts upon it? You just yeah. set up a beautiful conversation about where we were going to go next, which is, Mark, the strategies around detection, investigation and response, because that was the gap, I think in the solar winds attack is if you could detect it how would you have investigated and responded differently with the right data pieces to actually say wait something funny's going on we should investigate even further yeah so let's let's talk about the process of detection and then uh, response and, and one of the things that i've done to to help drive some discipline in how I do uh, business and how we're going to do business at Extra Hop is I've taken a hard look at at some of the very very uh, respected practices. You know, NIST has a, a publication, NIST 800 series. It's a special pub series, 861 revision two, where they talk about the the various phases of the incident response. They call it a life cycle. They actually have a fantastic a diagram that shows kind of an internal feedback loop between detection and analysis, and then um, uh, eradic uh, containment, eradication, and um, re uh, response, okay? And then, and then you have recovery as the final step once that you've figured out how to manage the damage in your network. Detection is absolutely key. You cannot move to containment, you cannot move to eradication, and you cannot move to response until you have detected, you've had a chance to analyze, you've had a chance to identify, and maybe even do some attribution. So, but let's talk about what I'm gonna call the cyber kill chain. Lockheed Martin came up with this great cyber kill chain. 
And every step along, either the advanced persistent threat or the very, very simple ransomware attack that's driven by phishing delivered malware, uh, you know, your typical email born payload, uh, malicious payload. You have you have very, very specific observable indicators. Okay. And one of the things, and I'm going to have to say it, I'm going to pitch extra hop again. I'm sorry. But one of the things that we've done at XDROP, and it's very, very intentional, is we have created very specific alerts that are tied to what are known as the MITRE attack indicators. Now, MITRE attack stands for adversarial uh, tactics, technique, and common knowledge. So what they've done is they've taken, and there's a little bit difference between the the Lockheed Martin kill chain and MITRE attack, okay? Lockheed Martin kill chain is the process by which you observe and intervene and prevent the attack by breaking the chain, the process that the attackers are using to break the chain. MITRE attack is not focused on breaking the chain. They're focused on what are the indicators. We're going to call them TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures that the bad guys are using, either state-sponsored or criminal, one of the two, maybe ideologically motivated, but they have these techniques that they use. Every single one of those techniques, not every single one, most of them, that have already been associated with a known vulnerability or a known pattern or a known vulnerable protocol, we have created alerts inside ExtraHop. So let's say we're looking at your network and we're looking at your network and you're one of our, um, we call it advisory services customers. We run and we observe actively these, your, your transmissions, your protocols that are being transmitted across your network. We call it telemetry. We capture the telemetry, we observe the telemetry And then based on that observed telemetry, if we see one of those indicators of a TTP, we alert. And then if you're one of our um, uh, security response service customers, we give you a notification. So one, ExtraHop has the capability to detect. Number two, ExtraHop has the capability to analyze and identify the type of tool, the type of tactic, the type of technique that is being used and then we can help you as a customer or help you as a trusted business partner respond and by responding you can break the cyber kill chain excuse me as early in the process as possible you want to break the cyber kill chain at a stage called delivery you don't want the bad guy to get to exploitation you don't want them to get to installation you don't want them to get to command and control and by the time the bad guy gets to what's called action on objective, it is too late. There's nothing you can do at that point other than pay the ransom, you know, and we don't want you to do that. I would never endorse paying a ransom. So along this this process, so you can say delivery, well, delivery is associated with the TTPs, the attack um, vectors that are associated with either initial access or execution. We can identify those. We detect the TTP, we analyze the TTP, we understand if it's a threat to your enterprise, and then if you're a security response customer, we help you respond faster. And or, res- and, and, go ahead. And Mark, I, I want to I jump in here for a second because 
the detection, the analysis that ExtraHop has at the network layer has some, I think, interesting insights into those early stages. But response right. is, it can be a multiple things, right? Response could be just simple containment. It, <clears throat> it could be uh, right. some other automated response action. I, I want to dig in. I want you to dig into that a little bit because when people think of response, we're thinking, Okay, I've already been compromised. Therefore, I, you know, I have to think about disaster recovery and and other aspects. But you you can actually stop it before that if you're if you detect it early enough. You can say, wait, wait, we're, we're gonna we're gonna isolate this device so it it can't get to the next phase. Walk us through some of those different response actions before you get to a full blown incident response. So so absolutely. So let's talk about the very first stages of. of and it's going to be both the MITRE attack uh, analytical framework. I'm going to call it an analytical framework or technique framework versus the cyber kill chain response framework. Okay. So what, but both the very first steps of both the MITRE attack analytical framework, tool analytical framework, and the cyber kill chain response framework is reconnaissance. That's where we observe what's going on. So, so what you want to do is you want to have an understanding of what is going on with your network. You, and you can detect reconnaissance. You can't necessarily alert on reconnaissance, but reconnaissance informs you. now, And that's one of the most difficult because a lot of that can be just background noise. But detection of reconnaissance is still a valuable tool. And if you can detect the reconnaissance and you have great threat intelligence, and then you're able to start to take preemptive protective actions, very preventive actions. But And resource development is the um, MITRE attack statement, how the, the bad guys are using the tools to craft the, the perfect email, to send the perfect malicious payload to the perfect browser system, the perfect webmail system on the perfect browser system. They, that's what they do. They craft how they attack your system. And that's called weaponization in the cyber kill chain um, response framework. But then cyber kill chain looks at delivery. So delivery is how is access initially given? Well, there's very specific tools and techniques, but the sooner, and this is the point I wanna make, I don't wanna give you a, a dissertation on uh, point defense or a dissertation on network defense, but the sooner you stop an attack in the cyber kill chain, the better off you are if you can stop it as they deliver the payload. And that's that, I mean, you guys talked about Cisco Umbrella. Um, I used Cisco Umbrella four years ago and I saw it protect uh, a hospital network that pervasively used SMBV1 from uh, WannaCry. Seriously, we could have been destroyed by WannaCry and Cisco Umbrella was one of two tools that stopped it. Well, guess what? That's because the bad guys tried to deliver the malicious payload and it was stopped by the very first line of defense. So let's let's talk about stopping the attack as soon as possible, pushing our visibility, our let's call it radar. We'll use the military analogy of radar, pushing our radar horizon as far out as possible, but also um, understanding enough about your network that you're able to take the actions you need to to prevent delivery. And that's one, of, and I'm not gonna bash EDR, that's one of the great things about EDR. 
defense frequently stops at the end point and if edr can prevent the delivery of, of a malicious payload to one of those remote or teleworking endpoints that's great but once once the the payload is there and you have delivery and you have initial access and you're starting to see execution from a ttp perspective you're starting to see exploitation from a cyber kill chain pers perspective that's where you really need to have the visibility into all of the traffic uh, going across your network. The visibility into all traffic network segments is what so, I would call it. Yeah, so let's use SolarWinds because SolarWinds is a very interesting use case. I, I think it's the most prolific use case for this kind of conversation is because there were... At least in the last six months. Yeah, I mean in the last six months, but but... But still, I think it's so on the top of everybody's mind. But it was a very interesting attack, right? Indicators didn't exist for this. So right. if you're not using some level of anomaly detection and right. doing some alerting on some of those early stages in the attack, it would have slipped by, and it did slip by, a lot of organizations. Right. And, and my, my curiosity here is, how do we prevent the next one, Mark, right? W what are those lessons learned from SolarWinds to say, should we have taken more time to really look at those anomalous detections and investigated them a little further, a little deeper in my IR plans to say, wait a minute, this device never done that before, or this type right. of tra traffic's never been seen before. Let's not just blow it off to an anomaly. Let let's investigate because if I investigate and I realize that something nefarious is going on, I could have taken actions a lot earlier in the process instead of waiting for the indicators to come out after the fact. Thank, thank goodness to FireEye for doing that. Because I think a lot of organizations to this day, if those indicators weren't out, still would not know whether they were attacked from the SolarWinds attack. I mean, that's how yeah. complex this was, right? Right. And... and Let's talk specifically about SolarWinds. I agree that it is probably the most effective, most egregious attack that that I have ever seen, uh, other than perhaps when the Chinese hacked into OMB and got the background investigations on, you know, government employees, including the yeah, SF-86s. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was that was a, a, a disaster for federal employees. Uh, now the Chinese know who to target. But let's talk about well, solar. And non-federal employees. <laughs> My stuff was in there. Yeah. If you had a clearance, you were yep. there. Yep. I had a so but let's talk about SolarWinds. SolarWinds was so successful because it gave, it gave a foreign power access to over a dozen federal agencies. Yeah. A dozen federal agencies through a tool that we were using for network management. And so that's that. That is an incredibly successful attack um, by any by any definition, and certainly a successful attack by what we would consider to be nation-state-sponsored uh, cyber-based intelligence collection. But let me tell you one of the things we've done to respond to that at at ExtraHop. We've actually taken a look at all of the uh, TTPs that the, the adversary used and how they used those TTPs. And we've done a bit of a post-mortem mortem, and we found that we observed most of those. Yeah, we were, we were looking at them and we actually had alerts that went off because of that. And many and, times, and, and, and 
Because, uh, well, I think there's two things. One is we recognize that we need to get better on analyzing our response, which is why I've left Goldman Sachs and come to to extra hop. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. We're trying to create a response mechanism and a response capability so that we catch it next time because we have pervasive network visibility. We have comprehensive network visibility. If anybody can see it, we will be able to see it. So we want to be the ones who say, hey, we see something, it looks weird, it needs to be looked at a little bit more. But that that's that's beside the point. One of the, the, the challenges that our customers face, and it was before we created the advisory services organization where we're trying to build our security response service out of, is that our customers looked at it and they said, well, it looks like the solar wind server is just noisy. You know, mm. just solar another just noisy. another alert for a for a level just one SOC analyst. Right. I mean, absolutely. It's just well, the, the, it's a noisy server. It's a noisy um, server. And and here's what, why that was ingenious, because everybody knew solar winds was noisy. I knew that solar winds was noisy when I hooked up extra hop in um April, May of 2018, I bought extra op as a customer when I was at a hospital. And I thought, I said, man, this is really bad. I don't like these communications. And we were assured by our organization that no, this is solar winds normal behavior. And and so I've seen that and I went, okay, you know, you guys win. But but no, everybody knew solar winds was noisy. And that's the genius of this attack, because what they did is the adversary had natural obfuscation of their their behavior solar winds was noisy it created a perfect smoke screen that allowed the adversary to operate in a fully obfuscated manner and everybody just ignored it and so what what i think we have to do is have a greater awareness of what can be what is appropriate behavior one of our our analysts here at xtrop has actually written a white paper talking about what we call the software bill of behavior we have a software, you know, the, the um, to their credit, the new administration has said, we want to have a software bill of materials that are part of each um, application that's deployed in the federal environment. I think that's a great idea. I'm not going to knock that idea. I think maybe we should go a step further and have what we would call a software bill of behavior mm-hmm. so that when we do see anomalous out of band behavior from our software, we at least have a benchmark to compare it against. Yeah. And when we compare but, but, it against the ben- But ahead. the problem there the problem there, Mark, is uh, I mean, I agree with you implicitly and as a shameless plug for security and compliance weekly, we are interviewing I think it's next Tuesday, Alan Friedman, who is all about S bomb. Yeah, he he works for um, uh, one of the government agencies that escapes me right now because I've had too much whiskey. I think he's um, DHS, but well, he, he's affiliated. Right. But it's yeah, I forget what branch he is. But we're gonna be we're gonna be interviewing him very timely, as a matter of fact, uh, about the executive order that just came out, and S bomb is actually called out in the executive order, and right. and so on and so forth. But the problem is. You know, uh, you, you were talking, and I, and I was thinking, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, sounds of silence. You know, people speaking without listening, people hearing without listening, you know, speaking without talking, hearing without listening, people seeing 
without recognizing what it is that they're looking yeah. at. But so, I don't know that you've actually addressed the the fundamental problem. You, you know, you said, uh, you know, solar winds was noisy. So how do we get between the it's noisy? Let's just kind of dismiss it or accept it or pass it off. And and how do we distinguish between noisy and noisy? Right. How, how do we find the signal through the noise, which is yeah. what we used to talk so about let's, back in the day? Let's, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up and, and kind of, I mean, we're way off kind of topic here, but let's talk about what I'm going to call the intelligence and analytical lifestyle, life cycle, okay? We start okay. with huge amounts of data. I mean, just capture huge amounts of data. If you've ever been in what's called signal intelligence, you know exactly what I mean. We capture huge amounts of data and then we take that data and we put it into context and that data that's in context now becomes knowledge or i'm sorry now becomes information well information can have value or it might not have value it can be useless information there are things on reddit that my sons find to be absolutely brilliant i don't think that's knowledge i think it's non-value-added information. They think it's knowledge. But if the information has value, it becomes knowledge. Knowledge isn't perfect in and of itself, though. Knowledge needs to be able to do something. It needs to be able to inform a decision. Knowledge that informs a decision becomes intelligence. And if that decision can lead to some type of decisive action, we call that actionable intelligence, all right? The challenge that people, that organizations, enterprises that they face is they have a huge amount of data and they're, they're hoovering up all this data. Sometimes they're grabbing the wrong data and sometimes they're not even grabbing the data they should grab. If you don't have network detection and response, you're missing a huge amount of the data you need to grab. Mm -hmm. But just drowning in data is not the key. You wanna take that data, you want to convert it into information. And then you need to understand, you need to have awareness of your own environment. I mean, that's why, you know, I, the very first control in the NIST cybersecurity framework is identify. And the second and part of that is identifying your business environment. So you capture the data, you put it into context, you understand what is valuable and relevant, <clears throat> excuse me, in your business environment. And that becomes information. You understand how you use that information to make decisions and you identify what is knowledge and what you don't necessarily have to retain. And so now we've taken this information or this intelligence life cycle, this analytical process, and we've converted into something that can provide business intelligence to an organization. But until you understand what your, your, assets are until you understand how those assets should behave right. until you understand how your users are using those assets how those users are accessing their data objects how those users are accessing their processing objects you, you can't really understand what is what is relevant first of all and then what is normal what is normal behavior and mm -hmm. i mean you look at the uh you, know, you look at the detect control under under the NIST cybersecurity framework. They have they have three sub controls. It's uh, detect anom anomaly, anomalies and events. 
It's security continuous monitoring. And the last one is detection processes. So right. if you don't know what anomalous is, right. then it doesn't matter what you're protecting. And if you're not continuously monitoring, you're going to miss relevant events and relevant anomalies. So, and, and so let me break this down for the layperson that might be listening <laughs> to the show, because I get this, right? I'll, and I'll break it down even further, but go ahead, Matt. If you, you don't have a good inventory of what your assets are and the software running on those, and you haven't exactly. figured out what a behavioral baseline looks like for those individual components, there's exactly. no way you're going to do anomaly detection. It, it, it's just impossible, no. right? And without mm -hmm. anomaly detection in the stack, to be able to look, wait, something anomalous is happening. It's different. It's an alert. It happens to be on these systems, they might be a little critical because they might have access to my entire network. You can't solve this problem. You cannot solve the solar winds attack problem without those at least two basic concepts in place. Nope. Now, and, and, and the hard truth, the hard truth is that your baseline is going to be different for every business. Mm -hmm. You've got weird stuff going on on your network that's not going on anywhere else. So Extra Hop can't do that work for you. You've got to do your own baseline. You've got to figure out what normal looks like. When I used to train incident responders, I, I, I used to tell them this. Before the incident, you need to be familiar with what your logs look like, You know what your network looks like, what's normal for your environment. Because if the first time you're looking at it is during the incident, there's going to be so many rabbit holes you get distracted with and you go down. You're going to... Everything is going to look bad. Everything is going to look like an attack, and it's not. Yeah, and I so, like this. So many, if I if I may, Matt, I'm sorry. So many, so many analogies and 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 overlays here. You know, we're talking solar winds, but in our description of solar winds, I I, I go back to because I'm PCI focused, the target breach back in 2014, right. where yep. I, I think it was FireEye. They had FireEye Fire yep. deployed. They were getting notices. They were they were detecting someone from Bangalore the called them on the phone, right, right. and told and, them you and, get a problem. <laughs> and and but the issue was, and I don't know how you. And this is just one tangent that I want to go off there. There's there's sort there's this certain human uh phenomena where we where we look at something and we see something and we sort of have this dis disbelief are we really seeing it or is that really what i think we are i, I don't know what you call that there's probably a psychological sociological term for it that's one element but but even what you were just talking about in terms of like knowing what is normal and having an idea what is normal right. i mean that goes all the way back to the cuckoo's egg that's cliff stall yeah back in yeah. eight, 1980 whatever where you know he had like what a 70 cent discrepancy on the on the mm -hmm. on the on the monthly charge for use of the mainframe and he's like yeah that's weird and he started digging into it uh, you know so there there's a certain you gotta be willing to go down that rabbit hole well the willingness but also this just the the acumen or the awareness to right if yeah. you see oh. something that's not normal what do you do about it? The analogy that I've used for years, and I'm not even sure who taught it to me in the first place, but, uh, and, and so this is somewhat, you know, I don't even know if this is real or not, but I was taught somewhere in my life that the way that, uh, that people that are bank tellers 
are trained to detect counterfeit money, currency, you know, cash. You know, people may not know what that is anymore. But the way that they were trained to detect counterfeit money back in the day, at least, was to handle real money. They would mm-hmm. they would make people touch it, feel it, crumple it up, smell it, sniff it. You know, just they were constantly immersed in what was real, in in the in the context of if you see something that's huh. not real, it's going to trigger something. You may not know so what it, it is. In you may words, not know it was that experience. It's it was something it was you couldn't teach. Sense. They had something to experience you couldn't it. teach, but it was but it was you know if you constantly you know build build in the idea of this is normal this is real this is real when it's not real you may not be able to identify what it is but you at least know it's not real and in my experience uh, in, in dealing with many companies over the years the more secure companies were the ones that had people that may or may not be their job description but their you know their their personal mission in life was you know, it's not going to happen to my systems, my box. I I am aware of everything. I know what's going on, and it's 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 that NCIS Gibbs gut feeling something's not right. I don't know how you teach that. I certainly don't know how you automate that. Right. But automation is certainly helpful. But you know, then it's the whole war games thing. You know, do you trust it? And and do you? Oh oh. W- we solve this all with AI and, and ML, right? Right. No, so I think that's a great point, Mark, is how do we make it real, right? For our level one SOC analysts, how do we make these anomalies real to the point where they're like, that's not right? Because I think that's the challenge in the incident response process is that the level one analyst who doesn't necessarily may not have all of this experience how do we make it more real for them to for them to say wait that's that's not what i'm used to therefore i'm going to investigate because i think that is the big lesson learned from solar winds and if we can use technologies to help us make it more real and and make us think about it and go wait i'm going to question that i may not have time cuz i'm i'm in alert fatigue because they are we get it but yep. but how do we make it such that it it, it trigger something for them to want to do that deep dive in the investigation. Yeah. Put that money in their hand. You practice, 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 practice. Yeah. And and I'm actually going to, you've, you've hit on something that I I really want to make sure we hit on is they can't even see it. I mean, if, if it's not visible to them and that sounds like Mm -hmm. uh, a, a very stupid way of saying it. Let me give you an analogy, and it's it's a battlefield analogy, or at least a Navy analogy. Let's say that we know we have to protect an island in the Pacific. We don't know where it is, though. We don't know what it looks like. And if we don't know what it is, and we don't know where we don't know what it looks like, and we don't know where it is, we can't protect it. We have no visibility, and 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 then we lose the battle of Midway. So the first thing you have to have it. You need to understand where it is, and. You guys hit it with the very first thing you said, Jeff, when you said, well, you got it's got to start with inventory. And there's a reason why the first two CIS, Center for Internet Security, critical security controls, top 20, number one is inventory, your hardware. And number two is inventory, your software and your applications. I mean, there's a reason why 
Those are number one and number two, because you cannot protect what you do not know about. And you cannot understand what is anomalous until you understand the behavior of the hardware and the software on your system. And let me, let me, um, so let me, but it's not just that, okay? You can have an inventory, but if you can't observe the entire inventory, you can't protect it. And right. while I love EDR and I think Sean Henry's a great man, I respect, I've respected him for 19 years, literally. Um, I recognize that there are some limitations to EDR, and that's why the EDR and NDR combination give you the visibility. If you know what your inventory is, know what your devices are, know what software applications and what processes should be operating on your devices, and then you have the visibility into both those devices and the network they run on, and you understand what processes are normal across that network, and then you have visibility. But uh, And that's where we say, okay, that's the value that the monitoring yep. provides. Yep. But then you add the detection alerts. These are intelligent alerts. And I know you hit on AI, and, and I don't like the term AI. I, it's an expert <laughs> system that has automated learning, okay? It's an expert system. Automated learning. I know some guys at University of Arkansas doing real AI, but we'll just get over that that quibble point. But if you have those machine learning systems, those automated learning systems, self-educating systems, then you have the ability to, in fact, do detection and you have the ability to understand what is anomalous. That's one of the nice things about machine learning is that they observe what is a, what is normal. And then they can do a spike that shows uh, um, a discontinuity or, or an inconsistency um, with what is considered to be your normal baseline. So you have monitoring, you have detection, you have automated learning, automated um, learning, and then you have automated alerting. Yeah. And so you have those things that at least helps out the poor tier one analyst in the sock. Yeah. And I I, I, rem I remember seeing those guys in, in half a dozen different socks, either in the military or intelligence community or law enforcement. Even at the DOE, you know, Dan Commons had a sock um, there for FSA. And those guys were pretty busy. I, I think my takeaways from the segment, you know, <clears throat> we need network visibility across all of our assets because they may or may not be in our inventory. We need to continually monitor that activity. We need to baseline them and we need to look for those anomalies and give the right alerts to the SOC analysts. I mean, that is the initial recipe for any right. investigation response activities. And we can do that effectively. I mean, we put, at least we put the SOC analysts in right. a position to succeed. Can I, can I boil it down to three points, Jeff? Sure. So first is create pervasive visibility of your entire technical business environment. And that includes your data stores, that all of your data objects. It includes your interfaces to your third-party vendors. Okay, so you need to understand you need to have visibility into your entire technical business environment. The second thing is you need to prepare an effective incident response plan. I like to have what are called scenario-driven run books for different types of incidents that you may see but guess what you need to test the plan and you need to refine the plan 
And then the third thing I want to um, hit on is nobody can be an expert on everything. So you need to know who you can turn to to get help when everything starts to hit the fan. Um, so if you does your knock know that uh, does your knock have network uh, monitoring visibility that the infosec team could use? Maybe they need to talk to each other a little bit better. Maybe the the infosec team has uh, NDR visibility that could you be used to help the NetOps team recover from an incident. And then I think you also, as part of that last question, know who to turn to to get help. You need to who outside your organization is ready to help that has an understanding of your business operating environment. And so those are some of the questions that I think people need to grab hold of as they start to put together the most effective incident response uh, capability that they can ha possibly have. Fantastic. Well, to, to dovetail on that, and I know we're trying to wrap up, Matt, but I have a few closing thoughts. Um, uh, the I agree with everything you said. The, the missing ingredient often for many organizations is the, uh, let's just say, the motivation to do just that. Uh, you know, we, we tend to talk sort of idealistically about, well, you know, every organization would want to do this because that's how you be secure. But, you know, in, in, the, in the private sector, very often companies are driven by other things and they don't necessarily have the, the expertise or the institutional knowledge to do that. So they're reduced to we only do what the regulations and the compliance standards tell us to do. So there, there's a delicate balance between you know, doing all these right things and what motivates companies to do these right things beyond it's just the right thing to do. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's just sort of a, a thought. I, I, I don't, I can't let the, the, uh, the segment go without quickly asking you, having read your bio, how did you make the leap from FBI to department of education? So I, I understood that there would be different opportunities in the civilian world than I would have in the FBI. And my, mm -hmm. my let's just say activities in the FBI were um, focused either on intelligence collection, they were focused on um, intelligence operations, they were focused on cyber defense, attribution, for instance, collection, and then management of those same tasks. I, you know, I had some very interesting opportunity. I was the, um, the, uh, uh, let's call it the um, counterterrorism working group team leader in Baghdad in the international zone, the, the green zone. And that was an amazingly interesting experience. I, I uh, literally operated with Task Force Knight, which was a British SAS. Well, guess mm -hmm. what? While it's very cool, it doesn't translate to a very good job in the private sector. So what I had was the opportunity to move from a a position with in, at the Little Rock FBI to what was called the Technology Crimes Division of the Department of Education Inspector Office of the Inspector General. And in that position, I was uh, an, a field executive assistant special agent in charge of what was known as the Technology Crimes Division. And, and I had uh, people working for me in what we called the, uh, elect, uh, the evidence collection team. We had a data analysis team. And then we had um, the, uh, uh, what was it called? Investigative, uh, it was the investigative response team. But I had investigators, I had forensic analysts, and then I had data analysts who were looking at uh, the behavior of the attacks on our network. That was much more 
translatable to a position outside of the federal government than, um, you know, even though they were great jobs, than the positions I had in the FBI. Uh, there's, there's not really that much of a uh, um, market for former national security branch you know, field executives. Well, and I, I'm sorry. Everything you were just describing was all Department of Education. I thought you were talking about the FBI stuff. No, that was that last part was the Department of Education. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and if you let, let's talk about the scope of what needed to be protected. If you literally, and I'm not trying to brag, um, but the Department of Education had a couple data sets that need to be protected. The first one is called FAFSA, Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And if yep. you have kids in college, which I do for kids that either graduate or are in college, you literally know that information about every single member of my family, six out of six, guess what, is in the FAFSA. And then I have two kids that have student loans. And if you, so literally 170 million Americans, they have privacy related information, PII, personally identifiable information. They have PFI, personal financial information. They have tax information now. That's the type of information that we have to protect in the FAFSA. And then you look at the National Student Loan Database. If you added up the assets that are captured in the National Student Loan Database, I think it's the fourth largest bank in the world. Seriously, trillions of, of, of student, trillions of dollars of student loan out there, student loans out there that are either associated with financial institutions or they're associated with individual consumers that data needed to be protected. So we took at the Department of Education IG, we took that responsibility very seriously. We were protecting information about the American people that could be misused. I mean, if you think the target breach was huge, think about that kind of breach for a second. Yeah. No, I, I, I think one of these segments we should do with you, Mark, is is talking about that transition from the, the private sector in in government to the commercial side because I think it's fascinating we see a lot of military folks and other folks in in those branches looking to make that leap that story would be very interesting at some point I think in the future yeah I'd be I'd love to tell that story and I'd love I'd love to help my my brothers in federal law enforcement make that transition I'd love to help my yeah, I mean I was in the Navy for six years before I joined the FBI officer you know supposed to go to subs a nuclear engineering officer and you know um you know i would like to see those people be successful as they transition from that more you know structured environment into something a little bit uh you know yeah. a little bit definitely different objectives between what we're doing on on securing the national infrastructure some days and what the commercial <laughs> side does so i think is a very good story oh, absolutely mark thank you so much for joining us on enterprise security weekly hey it, it was great to be here it was a pleasure representing extra hop tonight to learn more about extra hop or their response services please visit securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop dash rsac thank you everyone for joining us paul is back next week no kid duty so he'll see you next week on enterprise security weekly